Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. It's really just about putting yourself in the in the line of fire for possibility. This week on the podcast, Ultranate, singer, songwriter, producer, performer, um, label owner, and of course, a great supporter of LGBTQ plus rights. My House of Revlon Queens, Baltimore chapter, they really were the ones who like got the doll ready. Everybody can look at that and relate in a different way. It was just this amazing moment where the stars were lining up. Still try to figure out where I can go and get a good boogie on. I've always been pushing myself to not be afraid to make a mistake. It's going to be a bitter pill, but I'm going to get something out of this. Pack it up. Now stay with us for the interview with Ultranate, but don't forget, please subscribe because it helps you. You'll find out immediately I post a new interview on the site. And of course, it helps me. Yeah, how about that? You know. <laughs> In your childhood, you were obviously brought up around music of your parents. I'm not sure if you're, you were brought up with your mother and father, but you were brought mm -hmm. up around music with your parents. What sort of music were you brought up on? Well, it was it was my mother and my stepfather, and um, my mother was the most instrumental with my music influences because she would collect albums, and um, we had loads of vinyl, and it really was my first introduction, my, my really, truly deep dive into music and the artistry of music because with the vinyl albums, there was a whole story. There was, there was all of the art and the the notes and the and the the thank yous and the credits and you know it was just this whole world every time you dug into a record and put put the needle on and then that was part of you know what I what ended up being my future craft as well is having that relationship with vinyl and um spinning music and dancing and like all of it really came to be my my training ground for being an artist, for being a musician, really, because I didn't have any formal training. So those records, those early records like Rufus and Chaka Khan, uh, Gene Karn, Earth, Wind and Fire, 
Um, you know, all the albums that she had in the house were were just kind of like my my thing. That was my jam. And I got lost in those in those places for hours. And I loved it. And, you know, I, I often say one of the albums that I really took a deep dive into as a kid was Marvin Gaye's Hear My Dear album, which if you had that album, it opened up, you know, into like this whole thing and all of the artwork kind of told the story of how the music was going to unfold and in this whole relationship and the the beauty of it of falling in love and then getting married and creating a life and then it all falling apart and going completely to hell like it's and it's all there in the artwork and in the story so it really gives you this really deep emotional relationship with Marvin's work at that time yeah, well, I mean, that was an amazing album because he wrote that because to give the royalties to his ex-wife, didn't he? So he told mm -hmm. the story within the album, which is yeah. a concept, which is something that uh, uh, you're into. But did music provide an escape as as a young person? Because if Oh, absolutely. Remember, so what, absolutely. what were you escaping from, do you feel? I mean, you're a teenager. You want to escape everything and everybody. <laughs> you don't like anybody when you're a teenager, right? I mean, that's just kind of the rules. Um but for me, it was just kind of like, I don't know, I'm very, I'm, I'm very like Pisces that way, where I could just kind of get lost in 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 those places. And I would often come home from school and, and lock my door to my bedroom and just kind of, you know, surf the dial on the radio oftentimes. And that's where I, I, I kind of dove into a lot of other genres of music into the world of pop and um you know, and to new wave and like punk rock and like all these other genres of music were very influential at the time, rock and all of those things. So I would just scroll the dial and just go from song to song and kind of just absorb myself into those places and, and have fun. Like, you know, my inner city life or whatever, like my reality at that time, it was nothing like tremendously horrible going on, just general, you know, teenage angst. But like those were the places where I could just be gone for hours, just scrolling the dial, listening to one track after the other. I mean, a, f a theme of your life has been um, really sort of equality and freedom mm -hmm. from you and your work, I would say. Um, what experiences of inequality and lack of freedom did you have as a child? Because often there's a relation to what you experience as a child. You want to sort of improve as an adult do you see what I mean no that's true I think that's true um however I don't think I had like a lot of overt instances where I felt like I was being suppressed or um kind of pushed into you know negative kind of situations my mother gave me a lot of freedom and a lot of room to kind of just be or do whatever I wanted and maybe that's where that comes from like that's just kind of like the way I lived like I wanted to try you know this and I just kind of went ahead and did it and no one was there to no one questioned or kind of interceded like you know you can't do that or that's not what we do or whatever like my mom was my mom was very free-spirited in that way I mean she named me Ultra Mate so there you go um she just kind of was, she's kind of like chill. Like she was a young mom. So she was still a kid herself in a lot of ways. She's only 17 years my senior. So she's really like my big sister at this point. And I think she was learning and discovering what life was about at the same time. So she didn't really shield me from a lot of things. So I was very much like an adult as a kid already in a lot of respects, which she would still say to this day, like I've always been, I've always been an adult in, in a lot of ways. And I think that that's more so um, 
where my thought process and what I subscribe to comes from, because I did have those kind of luxuries to um, have people around me that just kind of trusted that I was, you know, exploring things that were, that were creative. And it was also just kind of naturally where I lent myself instinctively. I leaned into artistic, fun, academic things or, or, uh, friends and and core groups that were like cool kids who weren't interested in doing you know doing the most and being ridiculous or whatever like my my close group of friends they were all like really chill and fun and you know the worst that we wanted to do was just kind of hang out at our school and and not go home because we just couldn't be separated from each other but I mean that was like the worst of it we weren't drinking we weren't drugging we weren't sexing like I just wasn't interested in any of it and not because anyone was, you know, stressing me, suppressing me, repressing me, like any of that, just because like that just not, that just wasn't who I was. It just wasn't there. Like I made moves into, into places like most of my life at my own free will. And at the moment that I felt like I was ready to like be in that space. So maybe that's where that thought process comes from me as like a natural inclination. Like this is how it really should be for most people. For, you know, why, why wouldn't anyone think that this makes sense? When I was 13 in 1972, so I'm older than you, obviously, <laughs> you can see it. <laughs> I, um, I was a massive fan of David Bowie, but he provided a world for the gay teenager that I was at that time, mm -hmm. which was a safe space. You know, it was mm -hmm. like the world I wanted to go into and yeah. not not the world that I was in. I mean, this is a slightly different era from when you're brought up, but it's still yeah. a, you know, we're talking a while ago. So, um, and I just wondered, because the music that you were listening to, these were also identification figures for you mm -hmm. um, as well. How I think I was just heavy. I think I just, I was just kind of an emotional kid. I, I, I just, you know, I could empathize with people's situations and um, kind of, hear these stories and be inside of it in such a way like I was truly experiencing it like it's it's such you know the whole story of like Marvin's relationship and its demise was so heavy for like an early teenager I've never experienced anything of that level at that point in my life but I was there and I was in it and I felt all of it so it it really is just kind of you know some some of the things that become your outcome are just who you are to your core, you know what I mean? It's just th certain things affect you by the environment that you grow up in, but then it, that's also married with who you are at your core. And who I've always been at my core is someone that believed in equality for everyone. And, 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 and I believe that people should, you know, experiment and see where their lives are and, and see what their purpose is and, and live in their truth, whatever that truth might be. And, you know, as long as you're being positive and productive and, you know, I, that just always seemed to be where I came from. And when I started going out to clubs, I think that's when it really like kind of turned on uh, exponentially because then I was in a community of like all kinds of fun, interesting, dynamic people. And I always loved that, you know, that was always like really inspiring to me. And fortunately, again, my mom was not the kind of person to be like, what are you doing with those weird people? <laughs> like, what are, you, what are you hanging out with the gays or the whatever? Like, 
that just wasn't her. Like she had all the same kind of friends. You know, my mother was like my first like glamazon and would wear lashes and makeup and hair and do fun things. So I had like this amazing, you know, model right there under my nose that was learning and growing. And, you know, my mom would, you know, one day have hair down to her butt. And then the next day she'd be bald as a chicken and she looked amazing doing it all. And she did it all unapologetically. And so I guess that's, that's kind of just where, you know, the chip doesn't fall, you know, it's for the old block they're uh, saying as it goes. Um, I suppose what yeah. I'm getting at is because, you know, we all have role models in life and these role mm -hmm. models are particularly um, important identification figures or whatever, you know, we want to call them, uh, but not all of us become role models and identification figures, which you have. So I'm just wondering if you really understand the importance of what it is to be that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I, you know, I, I didn't, um, the funny thing is I didn't seek it out. And long before I even made the first record, I had kind of already stepped into that just in my local community. Um, but when you, when you're in that position, you do take on a certain level of responsibility in that. And, and I'm fine with that because I've always, I've always kind of lived in my truth. Um, you know, I've always put it out there. I've always been able to laugh at what I do. I've always been able to be as authentic and transparent as possible, because I think that's where the real freedom is in your life. Um, and so I think that that's, that's brought me a certain level of comfort of being able to make mistakes and being able to say who I am and, and what I, what I believe in without, you know, reprisal from anyone. Like you can, you know, take it or leave it. It's all good, but this is what it is. Um, and so I think people find that to be like, yeah, okay. She's been doing it. She's been doing it for a long time. She's been consistent about it. Like that's all people really want is for people that they love and believe in to be authentic about what they say and do. And I found that I've I've always been able to do that through my music and then and how I represent myself. The club that you were talking about is Odell's and it's where, let's say, it's sort of the club where your world possibly opened up. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you were becoming or training to be a doctor. So <laughs> How do those two worlds? It was my intention. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How do those two worlds, you know, conflict? And also, how did your mother? I mean, I know you said you had a very open mother, and that she was very, mm -hmm. you know, um, liberal in that sense as well. Let you do what you want to do, but in a sense, um, parents seem to always want something stable mm -hmm. for their child, and in a sense, you chose what is possibly instability. Yeah, how about that? You know, <laughs> we could go on from there. Um, you know, it was a it was a lot of things happening in that moment. You know, that was actually the first moment that my mother actually tried to suddenly drop the hammer. <laughs> you know, um, was that mo and and not even the moment that I transitioned from going to university to continue on this path that I had started in becoming a, a medical professional. It wasn't even in th at that moment. It was the moment that I graduated from high school and going into university, I kind of wanted to take a little like six month break because I had gone to this school with intention. I had applied for it and it was, it was geared towards the medical profession. So I was on that path 
from the moment that I entered high school. So I was basically doing high school curriculum and doing my pre-college courses at the same time. And it was it was a lot of work, but I did it. It was wonderful. I had a great time. And so my mother never had to micromanage anything that I did. This was my choice. I moved towards that with the school that I chose. I performed while I was in that space. And then suddenly we get to the point where I'm graduating and going into college. My only request from her was to let me go in a semester later instead of going straight from high school into university. And that was the first time she was ever like, no, I don't think that's a good idea. And so out of respect, I was like, okay. And I went in, but I was not in the right headspace at the time. I really felt like I needed a break. Um, I needed a, a mental reset and I was still only 18. And now I was in university in accelerated classes because I had done classes already, all the prerequisite stuff while I was still in high school. So now I'm I'm in a situation where the expectation level academically is much higher, but growth and development wise, I was still just an 18 year old kid that just graduated from high school. So that was a lot of a lot of pressure on me in that moment. And I don't think she quite understood that. And so here, as, as life would have it and the universe would have it, along comes this situation where I find out about Odell's and this, this club culture and this dance culture. And as soon as I went into that space, I was immersed and I immediately found my tribe and found so much vibrant energy and love and, 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 and just, you know, just, it was a whole different world that had opened up to me. And so I was, I was having this amazing dynamic going on where I was loving club culture every weekend, two, three times a week, and then going to school during the week and hating it because I felt like, you know, I felt isolated. I didn't feel like I really loved this space. I didn't have any friends now in this space. And, and now the expectation level is way up here and I'm just kind of tired. You know, I just need like a disco break for over here, you know? So it was all this going on. When the music business happened, because I met Basement Boys at the disco and we became friends and I started going to the studio just, you know, on a lark, having fun, creating a song called It's Over Now. And then that song ends up going to Tony Humphreys in Jersey. So when I came to my mother, like, okay, we're making a tremendous shift in our plan over here. It wasn't met with much backlash because it wasn't like I was presenting some fly by night, like kind of, you know, mediocre thing. Like I was presenting, I have a deal with Warner Brothers in the UK and they're signing me and I have a record coming out in the UK on Warner Brothers. <laughs> you know what I mean? So she didn't really give me any backlash at that moment. And, and this was all a surprise to all of us because first of all, none of us knew that I could even sing or write music. So we're all like, what just happened here? And I, I don't I don't recall there ever being like a question about it. I think I was young enough that everybody felt like, you know, okay, let's give it a try. Let's see what happens. You know, there's this time to rejig the plan of your life if you want, um, if this doesn't feel right in a minute. But she knew I wasn't gonna like not do the deal. You mentioned Basement Boys and of course the first track, it's over now, but the, in the audition, um, mm -hmm. you sang uh, the Angela Wimpish song, Angel. And yep. I just wanna read the lyrics out to you because I, I, for me, they really <laughs> actually 
<laughs> sum up your positivity and and I don't know your aura something about you in this I found a certain paradise within my life with you heaven opened up its gates and peace of mind came shining through you smiled at me when the world was unkind I was finally able to unwind I found I found an angel yeah an angel and this in a sense your choice is something that has sort of permeated throughout your life. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I've never really thought about it that deeply. I just needed to sing a song to audition. And in that moment, there were remembering, again, I've never sang any in any kind of real sense in that moment. Um, I sang on my choir, in my church choir, but I wasn't like the singing diva doing the leads and things like that. I sang as part of the, the choir situation. So this was the first time I was ever being pushed, like being put like in the front to represent as a singer. And in my mind, my voice wasn't a singer's voice because I had grown up in this church environment where it was always the sopranos who, you know, sang the hoops around every song. Um, so I didn't really know my voice in the time. And in the audition, there were four or five other people there who were professed singers. So it was very intimidating in that way and I, I listened to Angela Wimbush a lot on the radio. I loved that song. I listened to Regina Bell a lot at that time, Luther Vandross. It was the big soulful vocalist that I was embracing at that time. That That's what I was living with in the inner city of Baltimore. I was listening to R&B radio all the time. So in a, in a moment, I had to choose a song to just go in the booth and sing an acapella of. I chose that particular song and I still love it to this day, but it is, it's one of those really needy kind of songs that Angela Wimbush's vocals are incredible. So in hindsight, I'm like, girl, like what? <laughs> you chose Angela Wimbush. You were really ambitious in that thought process, but it wasn't, it was really just naivete, really. I was just kind of like, okay, I'll sing a song. Like this is a song I know and love and just like went in there and just wing it. Um, and that, again, is where I think being even being green is a blade of grass in a lot of instances, there is a certain level of, I wouldn't say fearlessness because I could be scared out of my mind, but I think there's just this um, level of, you know what, if I crash and burn, so be it, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's this, this kind of renegade maverick kind of spirit in it where like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, but I'm gonna wing it and, and see how it goes. And the worst that can happen is it's trash, but it's not the end of my life. And I think that's kind of always been how I've approached everything. So I've always been pushing myself to not be afraid to make a mistake, you know, not be afraid to, to look foolish because somewhere in there is the possibility of being great. When did you first perform this song? And what was the moment that you realized on stage in front of an audience that you had something? The first time I performed It's Over Now was here in Baltimore. By that time, Odell's had closed and Wayne Davis, who is like our godfather of house music here in Baltimore, um, had opened a new space. He he was the main DJ at Odell's for many years. But by the time I came along, he was doing the management side of things. Um, but he, when the club closed, he started his own little venue. It was a very small little townhouse size uh, club called Fantasy. But there was a Sunday night party that was Basement Boys Night. And so the boys used that that night a lot of times. It was also like, the you know, the, for lack of a better word, like the gay night 
for a, you know, the, gay, the, the kids all mixed in together every night of the week, but the gay night was like, Sundays were like intentionally, you know, a thing. They were really trying to carve out a sound and a story for Sunday nights. So that was the first time that I ever performed the song, ever performed really as an artist in any kind of respect in any real way, because by then the song was now out or about to come out. The community here knew because Basement Boys were playing it all the time. Tony Humphreys was playing it. And so, you know, I always credit my queens here in Baltimore, you know, my Revlons, my House of Revlon Queens, Baltimore chapter. They really were the ones who like got the doll ready for the show, you know? So it was like, this was the moment I was going to sing for my community, for my, for my peeps. These are friends that I, that I danced with for hours every weekend, but now this is a different situation. And so, you know, my team, they came together, but my hair, my makeup, my little tiny dress and the whole thing. And just, you know, the attitude of, you know, runway and ballroom and all of that. You kind of learn all these things being in, growing up in these environments. And I just channeled all of those raw things and had this amazing show here in my community. And that was the first time that I really was like, huh, okay. I guess I am really doing this. You know, that was the that was the moment I was like, it kind of all crystallized. Because for a while I was just, you know, kind of dancing through the dewdrops. Like, okay, I'll try this, I'll try that. But it wasn't really real. It hadn't congealed in my mind yet until until that moment. And then again, when I when I performed it in Jersey for the first time at at uh, Zanzibar at Tony's Club. Yeah, tell me about that performance at Zanzibar because Humphreys had already played it, and so I presume it was through him yeah, uh, that you got yeah. to Zanzibar. And also, yeah. was it that was were the record company in the audience then? So Tony was super, super instrumental in creating so much profile on the record. And it was a very different time in house music because it was still very underground. A lot of original tracks were being made literally in the basement. And these tracks were now being played by key DJs like Tony and becoming big hits in these club venues. And so the majors had started paying attention to that. And so we kind of had the ear of the majors. That was a, a window of time when the, when the dance music from, from house music as an underground scene had suddenly caught the attention of the majors. And that was the moment when it segued into being a global sound, actually, you know, um, myself, Crystal Waters, many out of Chicago, others out of New York were signed to these major label deals because of what was happening in that moment. So Tony was very instrumental in creating the profile on It's Over Now. He was banging it at Zanzibar and the kids knew it lyric for lyric. He would play it two, three, four times a night. This was also the era of like the, the 12 minute, 15 minute mix. So it was going on for a long time. Like you were in that journey. And he was playing it on his Kiss FM show in New York that was being syndicated over in London. So the kids in London were getting it. And this was building profile because there was nothing out there that sounded like this record. And at that time there was no um, file sharing or bootlegging. So he could play it on the radio. He could play it at the club. No one else had it but him. And it was creating this fire and um, you know, this whole story around it. Like, what is this record? It's very bluesy. It's very underground, but it's got this saxophone and it's got this beat, this backbeat that's kicking, you know, it had all these different elements that really separated it from what house music was doing in its infancy at that time. And 
I was invited to come and perform at the club. The label wasn't there that particular night just yet. But that first performance was just for Tony and the club. And I, and again, when I performed it, the, the energy around my performance was, and, and embraced the, the moment they embraced me that the way they did, there was so much love from the Jersey crowd. It was amazing because, you know, there was a lot of uh, prestige around Zanzibar, you know, and the, and the whole Jersey movement. So to be embraced in that way as a, you know, a little club kid from Baltimore made a first record, you know, by happenstance in the, in the basement one night, you know, in five minutes and just kind of like freestyled these lyrics and melody off a track I hadn't even heard in that moment. Like all this raw stuff is now, has now taken on a life of its own. So that really was like the moment. Meeting the label people happened a little bit later. And that was Cynthia Cherry, who was already a part of the Basement Boys camp in that she was their A&R person for a small label called Jump Street. They had done one record previously for. And then as luck would have it, she was going for a new job with Warner Brothers in the UK. So that's how that connection all happened. She got the job with Warner, with Peter Edge, they were starting a dance imprint under Warner Brothers called Eternal. And I was one of the first artists with It's Over Now being the first record to come out. So it was it was just this amazing moment where the stars were lining up to open up this whole new world to me and this whole new career. What were your first impressions? Because you came to London, you were still a teenager, I think, when you came to London. Um, and, you know, and you mentioned, in a sense, house music became mainstream in Europe and the UK uh, quicker than it, well, I think it, <laughs> it didn't really in America, did it? Do you know what I mean? And the, so, Not till and, much, and, much later, if and, even and, still, still yeah, questionable. And period, <laughs> yeah, and at that period, I worked for uh, MTV in London and mm -hmm. uh, we, you know, Kim Mazel used to come in at my era a bit before, you know, mm -hmm. your time as it were. And um, we were also instrumental, Kiss FM of course played a massive role but we were also instrumental in bringing that into the mainstream. What, what were you surprised at the the cultural differences of how um, Britain and Europe viewed house music and how house music was viewed in America? Oh, it was it was mind blowing. It was crazy. I you know I still vividly remember arriving for the very first time into London into Heathrow and. I'll never forget the first things that I saw were the massive billboards of a diva and her first album or single or something coming out. But it was clearly like our diva, our Jersey girl. Like we dance around in the underground to her music every weekend. And I get off a plane and step into this, this massive airport at Heathrow and she's on these billboards all over the place. And that was the immediate moment I was like, okay, Dorothy, you are no longer in Kansas. It is a whole different game over here. And everything from that moment was just mind blowing. And, and so in such a wonderful way, it was a wonderful moment of exploration, of evolution for this music, for my life. Um, I was coming over to do a video. I was coming over to do TV interviews, the whole thing, and I and I remember waking up the next morning in in hotel in Portobello, 
and the sun was beaming in my room. And I just kind of like had to take a deep breath and take it all in. Like, what just happened? <laughs> like, what just happened to your life? You know what I mean? It, it seemed like it was like that. Like, what just happened? You're suddenly flown over to England. You're doing, you know, major TV because It's Over Now had done really, was doing really, really well. And we were shooting videos and doing all these things. And for me, the dynamics, it was such a dichotomy between my life in Baltimore, your underground club kid, it's all good. And then you get on a plane and go over here and suddenly your face is on buses, you know? And so it's like, it was it was really wild um, experiencing that, but being a part of that movement and that group of Americans that were making our own music, authentically make, doing our own thing and being completely experimental. And that was another thing about like another layer of who I was as a kid, like I had no rules. So I somehow stumbled into this whole music situation where again, I had no rules and I could just be as authentic as possible and learn my craft and learn what it was to be a musician, learn what it was to be a writer and a singer and all these things. And it end up going out to the world every time. And I'm like, wow, this is really stunning. You know, this, there were some really amazing lessons early in there. I mean, one thing I saw an interview with you and I, and I found it really fascinating when you, you talked about house music as being the development from the, the disco era. And in America, mm -hmm. course, there was that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. DJ, I don't know what you call him really, Rock yeah. Jock or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dale, <laughs> I think his name was, the one who did Disco Sucks. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and then there were these people smashing disco records in stadiums. And really, it felt like homophobia. Yeah, it was all you of that I mean? wrapped in. It was, it was all everything. it was racism, this homophobia, was, yeah. all of that wrapped up in the in the in the pot. Um, and it was also money. It was a big money thing as well, because you know, disco was was the most expensive genre of music to produce. And it was also making a lot of money. And it was bigger than the rock music at the time. And so it was kind of political in that way, in that a lot of the rock jocks kind of wanted to see the demise of disco just to take control of the charts again, to take control of the music again. Um, and so, and thus, it's always the money trail. Always follow the money trail. What were the pressures on you on being on a main label or being on a sub part of a main label? There must have been pressures on you. I think most of the pressure was I put on myself. Um, 
I can say, and you know, my experience is very different from a lot of people's experiences on major labels, but I somehow, you know, God provides, I had this charmed experience where I had this, I had the two amazing A&R people that were running my situation with the label and they got it, you know, they got it, they understood and they nurtured what I was doing. And they gave myself and Basement Boys this safe space to just create this music. And we didn't have a lot of rules. Like a lot of the stuff that I wrote for my first album were, were like first round demo versions. Like when I when I wrote It's Over Now, it was, you know, it was like on, in a moment. Like I, I sat at, my, at the table in the kitchen in the basement and we just kind of hammered out some lyrics. So I just had, you know, this scrappy piece of paper with some, some lyrics kind of you know, jotted down on it and no kind of organization whatsoever. And then they just threw me in the, in the, in the booth, literally with a track I had never heard and was just like, okay, just see if you can come up with anything. And so in that moment, I just kind of freestyled and came up with a melody with these kind of mishmash of lyrics that we just hammered out and created a song in that moment. And so obviously months later, it's gotten all of this notoriety. It's got me a major label deal. And I wanted to go back in and re-record it. And everyone was like, no, no way. Like, mm -mm. If you prefer to listen to a podcast, the audio versions are available on all platforms like Apple, Spotify, you name it. Just look for Pop the History Makers with Steve Blame and you'll find it. So there's no reason not to listen to the podcast or to watch it here on YouTube. <laughs> And I, I fussed about it enough that they finally let me go in and re-record it again. And I polished it more and everyone hated it. <laughs> you know, the label hated it. The Basin Boys hated it. Like everyone hated it because they were like, no, it doesn't have the funk anymore. It doesn't have that raw, you know, those moments where it's just like, just raw emotion. Like that's the magic. So what ends up being the record is all the raw demo stuff. And so it was really that kind of environment where I just you know, get a track and then I just kind of bounce off it on top of my head and write some lyrics and come up with a melody and lay that down. And and they're like, yes, we love this. And so it was such a crazy moment and a charmed experience in that way. Because originally I had, the, my deal was really only for the single with a follow-up. And somewhere along the way of that first album getting ready to there was no first, there was no album in the deal initially, but somewhere along the way of that journey of it's over now, the label reevaluated and decided to make it an album deal because I was continuing to write. And in fact, at, at one point they were looking for songs for a diva for, I guess it was going to be her, her full album coming out. So when I arrived in Heathrow those months before, it was probably for like her hit single at the time, but they were putting an album together. They were looking for material. The boys were, were, you know, they were sending out tracks to different people, you know, try to see if you can come up with something. And I wrote a song that wasn't accepted for a diva, but the song was very different from what I had already written with It's Over Now and Scandal. And I think they saw and heard the diversity in how I could write in my writing style and my singing styles. It was very different. And I think that was part of what convinced them to go forward with an album deal. And also because I had you know, a, a relatively strong hit record with It's Over Now, the last thing you want to do is release an artist at that point. You've created profile, you've built them up and created profile and had a hit record and then you let them go for somebody else to pick them up at that point. 
you've already done the groundwork. So they switched the deal to an album deal. And it was always that way. Like we would just go in, we write, we come up with ideas and we present things. And they're like, yep, here we go. And that was how the album came together. The pressure didn't happen until the second album. Yeah. So what happened with that second album? Because it's, it's, it's an odd thing really that it's external forces <laughs> which determine whether it's going to work or not. Yeah, way external sources in that um, at the time, Cherry, we called her Cherry, Cynthia Cherry, my A&R person, my main A&R person, um, she had decided she wanted to come back to the States because she's from, from America, she's from down South. She wanted to come back to New York where she lived. And so that meant that the late My Imprint Eternal was now going to go over to the under the umbrella of the U.S. label. So now it was on Warner U.S., so that second album was going to be geared towards the U.S. market upon its release. Um, it was going to be domestic here. As previously, I was domestic in the U.K. and I was an import here in the States. And so that was good for me because I was a domestic and in a country that understood and got it and loved this, this kind of music. And in Europe as well, you know, America was like, you know, it's where I live. I come home. I go to the disco and I'm good. People know me there. I'm, you know, I'm fine. But nobody knew me outside of that space. And that was just fine with me. But for the second album, everything changed because now I'm dealing with Warner US and all of the major players behind the scenes with that. And that is a lot to deal with. A lot of politics between departments. I was in a space with dance music that wasn't loved and embraced in the way that it was in the UK. They really didn't know what to do with me. So it was kind of like, how do we maneuver her into a more R&B kind of place? Um, and for us, it was kind of like where the boys were as producers were not ready to be so far in that space either. So they were still, they still wanted the funk. They still wanted the underground. We had an underground community of fans here in the States as well as abroad. So now we're looking at how do we, do we abandon that to now try to do this straight up R&B thing? That's not really our wheelhouse. So it was, a, it was a little strange. And I think we really kind of, you know, also with the help of my manager, Bill Coleman, like he was super, super instrumental in navigating a lot of things behind the scenes from first album and definitely with the second album in pulling in co-writers and collaborators and other producers that had a broader sound. Um, that's where the co-writes with like Soul Shock, Cutfather and Carlin um, came together. Um, that's where the relationship with De-Influence really flourished. Um, you know, uh, working with Nellie Hooper and all of these other people like to try to make this second album more palatable for mainstream radio and the US market while still being able to satisfy our underground fan base that we had you know, cultivated all these years and had been true to. And I think we did a great job with that with the album. It is definitely a hybrid of those two worlds, but that's not gonna work necessarily for a label like Warner where they were at that time in you know, 1992, 93. So, it was it was a it was a bit of a tricky situation there, and that that really was a very eye opening experience. And it's it was still a blessing because I still did a, a second album. I still have that music, and I got a lot of experience from being in that 
in that arena. By then I was a little bit older. I had a couple more years on me, a little bit more experience. I had a little bit more confidence in what I was doing as a singer, as a songwriter. And, you know, you, all of those experiences still give you the tools. It became an you, opportunity, didn't it? In yeah, a way for you, you got to figure out how to use it as an opportunity. Like it's going to be a bitter pill, but I'm going to get something out of this. That's going to, that's going to help me go forward. Yeah. And what you got out of it was a new label. And then of course, you know, the biggest hit ever um, yeah. through that label. Can you tell me about the the writing for free? Yeah, well, it's, you know, it is a culmination of all of those moments that we've just been speaking of leading up to all of that, like learning, the, the learning curve that I was on in real time with all of that stuff. And then obviously that US relationship with Warner came to an end. Um, and I was dropped after the second album because they really wanted something to click at radio. Um, and we got lukewarm at radio, but not a runaway hit at radio here in the U.S. And, you know, unfortunately, just the politics of the way the U.S. market works is, you know, it's often one and done. Yeah, If, if it doesn't happen that one time, like it, there's not there may not be a second opportunity, which is really unfortunate because, there's no time for artist development. There's no time to grow the audience with, you know, grow an artist with an audience and and develop that relationship with that kind of attitude. But also no one from the US company had signed me directly. And there's also that part of the political landscape in major label world where there's no allegiance really to a project or an artist if someone in the in the pot in the power positions that pull the levers is not involved directly with signing that off that artist it just is the way it is so it wasn't a big surprise because i was signed to the uk originally i had no relationship i had no one championing me within this new infrastructure and i was dropped and so there was a whole period after that where i kind of it was now roughly about 94 and I had to go on a sort of exploration of what I want to do with my life at this point. Like I'm still relatively a kid and young enough to like go back to school, continue in my academic pursuits as I was going to do and, um, and be good. Like this has been an amazing experience. I've gotten so much out of it. I've traveled the world by that point. I've made two albums on a major label. Like this has been phenomenal. Pack it up. Now let's go to real, real work. Like it was, if it was going to be that kind of thing or look at it as these things did not happen by osmosis. Like this happened organically because that is where I'm supposed to be. And you can't just walk away from that. And so that was the decision that was made myself and my manager. We had a lot of long conversations about musically what I wanted to do, where I wanted to go from there. And he was the one that brought in mood to swing Again, he's always been like very involved on the creative end as well as the business end. So he felt like Mood to Swing was like a great production team for me to work with. They were great songwriters as well as producers. And their music sounds great in the underground, but it also sounds polished for radio. Um, and that was exactly right. I mean, I was a big fan of Mood to Swing already from their underground production. So it was already like family. And when I met Lemon John, we just had conversation after conversation with my manager, Lem, John, myself, what this first song was gonna be. On the other side of that coin, there was Gladys Pizarro, the A&R from Strictly Rhythm. And she had reached out and wanted to do a record. She was like, you know, 
just want to do a record. Doesn't matter what, like, let's just do something. So we kind of had that feather in the back, you know, like, okay, we can always do a record with Strictly if we want to. We didn't want to, we didn't want to shop for another major label deal because the, that scene was shifting a lot at that time. Now dance music was doing its thing. You know, it was, it was making noise on a major label front, but I was no longer a little kid and it wasn't really, we weren't really sure if anyone was even going to want to sign me at that point. No one was breaking down the door once, you know, the word was on the street that I was no longer on Warner. No one was breaking down the door to offer me a record deal from another major label. So, I, you know, at that point in my manager's, you know, feelers in conversations with people, the response he had gotten more than one time was I was on the wrong side of 25 at that point. So really it was the moment for us to explore an independent label, but not an indie that was just gonna be like kind of an unknown underground imprint because now I'd been on major labels for like however many years, done two albums. And I knew how this thing goes, like to make a record a hit, there's certain things that's gotta happen, you know? And we decided to go with Strictly. Gladys stuck in there, she kept hammering it away. Like, let's just do a record, let's just do one record. But the thing that inspired you was Losing My Religion, wasn't it? Which was a, um, and I can understand that yeah. totally because I can, you know, I can remember dancing to Losing My Religion in, in, in a club or in a bar and, and, and the feeling that I got from that song is yeah. in a sense transported. Um, well, I knew that through. I wanted to be, I knew I wanted the first song that I wrote with Muta Swing that would be submitted to uh, Strictly Rhythm. And I was already writing an album with no deal in place. I was already working on an album because we already work towards what our goal is. And then we kind of go backwards from there. But um, we had a lot of conversations about what the style should be. And we definitely settled like guitars should be the thing. Myself and Bill knew that we wanted to make a very guitar focused kind of dance record, whatever that was gonna look like, I don't know. And so we let Mood to Swing know that and, you know, in that time, I was listening to a lot of different things. I've always loved that R.E.M. Losing My Religion song. And when I probably stumbled on it one day and it kind of brought back to me like, oh, yeah, this is a vibe where you have these two dynamics going on with these guitars and this really bittersweet one that as soon as you hear that start in any moment, anywhere you are in your life, you know, immediately it's losing my religion and it gives you it puts you right in a place and in a moment. And I was like, that's the kind of thing that we need. That's what we need. Something that's going to be so highly identifiable, love it or hate it. And so we we went down that path. We went down the rabbit hole with that. And here we are yeah. 26 years later still. I mean, the thing with it was this empowerment feeling, especially being a gay man, this empowerment. And I think it's because, and I think you understand this totally because you were in um, that scene and there, there was the first scene that you were in. We mm -hmm. experienced so many people dying because of AIDS. And in a way, that period in the 90s, I mean, it's a bit weird to say this, but it was sort of <laughs> starting to come out of that period in a way. So this empowerment of, again, of we can live again. Do you see what I mean? And then yeah. when, I, when I watched that video, and it's funny because I hadn't seen it for years and I watched it today, and mm -hmm. it made me feel like, oh, I wonder where there's a deeper meaning about AIDS in this video having it in a hospital mm. um, and having the the what's it called the straight jacket the straight jacket on. yeah yeah and I wondered whether the straight jacket was the AIDS era now I know you you didn't direct it but I just wonder whether that theme was running through it because it was almost like saying goodbye to a 
to an era that had been very tough and hoping to move on to a new world? It was very tough. I mean, I, I lost a lot of my friends, those queens that I referenced early on in my in my life on my very first show. Many of them were gone by that point in life because of the AIDS epidemic. So um, it definitely hit home. A lot of really beautiful, bright, talented, amazing people were gone at that point. I think um, when it comes to the video and even the making of the record, the subject matter, I think it was just uh, so many elements coming together. It was the kind of a perfect storm of we're still fighting, we're still moving through. I've been kicked off a major label. I've been dropped from a major label. Like that was like a real headbanger, you know what I mean? Because I had given given so much of myself to that space and now I was dropped. So it's kind of like, oh, now what do I do? You like you can't get that time back. So what are you gonna do? So there was that part of it. There was the sense of loss of people, um, the sense of like it's sink or swim at this moment. You know, but I think I always I've always trusted the universe and I've always just trusted that if I just make the effort that the universe is going to conspire to make it work. And, you know, it may be just like, you know, ridiculously optimistic in a, in a way, but I think it has proven to be true more often than not. You know what I mean? I wanted free to really speak to everyone because the even with the video, you know, that was World of Wonder. Um, Randy and Fenton, it was their concept, but even they got the dynamic of the story with the, the angst of the guitars and the, the the bittersweetness that was going on. But then there's the overwhelming sense of of empowerment and revolution and release and explosion that happens as the overarching message, and all of that needed to be conveyed through what you hear coming through your speakers, as well as what you see when you see the video. So the the straight jacket and the hospital is like all these really antiseptic, really sterile, really difficult, restraining uh, representations, like all of these specific symbols. Everybody can look at that and relate in a different way to their own life. Like, what does that represent for your life? That's what the way we wanted it to be, for it to be malleable in a way that it makes sense to everyone for what their life story is. But in the, but the overarching message is always that you can overcome this. You can move through it. Like there is, there is a victory somewhere in this, you know, even in the sadness, even in the bitterness, even in this really, really difficult moment of fear, you know, you know confusion, anxiety, we're going to make it. We're going to make it. <laughs> I mean, just keep pushing through, you know? Weirdly, that's exactly what the If You Could Read My Mind in the Pseudo 54 movie did as well. <laughs> yeah. And see, I didn't even, I you know, I was just kind of pulled into that one. I didn't, that was not me like, oh, I really want to be a part of this song. Like that was organic as well. Like the movie was coming out. In fact, I think it was finished and, all, and in the can. And uh, Tommy Boy was doing the soundtrack, and it was all—it was a, a compilation of like all of the tr the songs from that era that people were dancing to at Studio Fifty Four. But I think they wanted to create like something that was slightly original while still being relevant, and so they decided on this Gordon Lightfoot song and to rework it. And so they brought in Berman Brothers, they rewrote it, 
They, you know, reached out to Strictly to ask if I could, you know, perform on it as this super group, Stars on 54 with Amber and Jocelyn Enriquez. I thought it was an amazing idea. The movie's coming out on Miramax. Like, yeah, this is dope. Let's do it, you know? And um, we all went in the studio, sang it down and didn't hear a thing until the Berman Brothers finished the production. And then boom, this is the final song. Great. So it's great. We all love it. The next thing we hear is Miramax has decided to like change the ending of the movie. They're reshooting the ending. They want to bring you guys in as the ending. And the song is now like the theme of the movie. So, you know, again, mind blown, but it's really just about putting yourself in the, in the line of fire for possibility, you know, no guarantees anything is going to come out of it, but you kind of set yourself up for success by just showing up, you know, is the, is the biggest thing I'm teaching my son right now. It's like, you don't have to have all the answers, you know, as a leader, you don't have to have all the answers. I don't always have all the answers. I don't know what's around that corner or what's over the next hill. I have no idea, but you set yourself up for success by at least showing up for yourself by projecting what you want it to be and let the universe do the rest of the work. And so that, that's how, if you can read my mind, suddenly came came out and became a classic. And what's interesting is that, you know, I'm going to jump a bit because the where the record company being bought was one, or, you know, the Americans uh, having a different view of house music was one place that, in a sense, your career fell momentarily and then you had to stand up again. Mm -hmm. Then on uh, Stranger Than Fiction, although it had some really great tracks like Twisted, the, the again, the universe <laughs> conspired for it, for you not to succeed mm -hmm. in a way. And then um, it turns again and yeah. you set yourself up, which is a really fascinating um, mental state, I feel. <laughs> No, it is. Yeah, because, it is. It's know, pretty, it's pretty crazy. I'm glad you got one... it, Steve. You... Well, exactly. You but I'm, my story, Steve. To... <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to write the movie. <laughs> no. uh, I've been knocked down and, 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 and actually my ego took over and it was That's a huge it. mistake. Mm. So what is the secret of, of being knocked down and to be able to stand up again? Probably my, you know, I got the stick to itiveness. I've got to be more grind, you know, from Baltimore. Like everything is hard when you're from Baltimore. And I think it does, it does teach you a certain level of grit and stick to itiveness. And then I have this amazing, this amazing support system of people around me that really believe in what I do. And they go to war for me. They go to bat for me. I've watched my manager more than one time throughout the years literally go to war for me with people in the label. Um and for me, that's that's like money in the bank, you know, to have every every in all of those situations, win, lose or draw. There has been a support system of people who soulfully were down for me, who always believed that what I'm doing is good and they want to help facilitate that come to life. And so, you know, if if only for sheer will of like. Proving them correct. I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up. I'm very like water. I'm gonna, I've got these roadblocks, but I'm gonna find a way around it. You can shut it down, but I'm gonna find a way around it. You know, I, I may move in small increments because, you know, the way is just too difficult and I can only make micro movements for whatever reason. 
but I'm still making those micro movements. I'm still moving the chain every single day in my life. I am moving the chain towards what I want. And that's really the way you have to have to be. You have to be like water and be able to go up and down and around and, you know, whatever way you got to move slowly or with force, you are always moving towards your goal. So I think that's always been my, my driving force is being centered, um, believing in what I do and having a team of people around me that had, that believe as well and are willing to put in the work, put in the time that support me in a really, in a really amazing way. And they've, they've been people in the labels as well as my management. They've been my home team people there. They are other creatives that I worked with, whether they were writers, other co-writers, whether they were producers or musicians or what have you, like it takes a village in order to pull any of this off. And I, I, I appreciate that you mentioned what happened during that, that stranger than fiction era, because a lot of people don't connect the dots with that. Like they think, you know, life ended when free came out. And if you could read my mind in that era, because everything was so riding so high on major labels and the, and the profile was so, is so high, but, you know, to be able to continue get stranger than fiction out when the, the record business as a whole, the whole industry went belly up at that point in time in 2000, like 2001, 2002, when file sharing really became prevalent and the whole industry went spiraling out of control. So no one knew if anyone was going to have a, a deal, if anyone was going to be able to get music out, how music was going to be bought and sold, you know, if anyone was going to have a career, it was a really difficult time for that album to come out because there was no one driving the bus. You know, the labels, the people at the labels were just hoping they had a job the next day, that the label wasn't going to be acquired or merged into someone or just dissolved altogether. So it really got out, you know, but like squeaking it out, you know, by the skin on our teeth, to even get that album out. So it didn't get its day in the sun coming on the back of Situation Critical like we had hoped that it would. And they just really released it because contractually they had to release it. But there was no team there. There was no energy around it from the label to like really, you know, make it work, blow it up. To really deliver it in a real way. So it was a really tough moment. And then after that, there was no chance for anyone to be doing major label deals because no one knew if the, the labels were even going to exist. Um, so that was the that was the shift to then go completely independent because it was like, again, you're forced to either sink or swim. So you grow into a different way. Like water, you got to move around what the new obstacles are. And I've been independent really ever since 2000, 2003 completely independent. So everything people have seen from 2003 to now has been completely self-released, you know, or in partnership with another label, but still driven by our team, our team as independent label artists, the whole thing, financing most of the things on my own to keep the bus moving. Like, that's what we do. Yeah. And, I, and it's also like, it's, almost like you're an amazing chameleon because then you become a DJ. Um, and I just wonder what DJ gives you as an artist, because oh, you're, <laughs> you're, closer to, you're closer to an audience, mm -hmm. you know, when you're DJing, you're closer to music because mm -hmm. when we get older, we sometimes get detached from what we love um, or we can get detached from what we love, let's say. Um, yeah, and yeah. clearly, you know, you have a team that keeps you attached and you are attached 
because you're a DJ. Well, I'm attached also because I'm a, still a club kid at heart. Um, I still try to figure out where I can go and get a good boogie on, you know, who's doing a good club night that I can get to and just kind of lose myself in music. I think it's really, really important to sustain that. Like it's part of the fabric of who I am, you know, at my core. Um, and as long as I still feel inspired by that, I think I'm I'm, I'm in a good place. Um, when I decided to start DJing, that was also as just as organic as the moment as I wrote my first song in that it was inspired by my local scene starting to fall off. Um, I noticed that the clubs were drying up, the major clubs were gone, the club spaces were, were starting to be eliminated, people were starting to have parties in restaurants and in halls and places that were not dedicated to the scene, that didn't have dedicated sound systems, and I am a sound system snob. So, you know, I was like, this, 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 this can't happen. We cannot let this die like this. So it was really out of the, the necessity to give my own scene here locally at home another option that I started doing my deep sugar party um, with Lisa Moody. And we started DJing in that process. We started playing records six months before we, I started the sugar party. We started playing records because there was no place to go. I was home. I was off the road. I wanted to hear some music. I wanted I, I wanted to just go out and like hang out with my friends, see my local friends and and have a boogie. And there was nothing to do. So we kind of just like I was like, "Girl, what what is happening?" You know? So we gathered up our records. I was like, "You grab your 12s, I'll grab my 12s and we'll just go over to one of our other girlfriends' houses. She had turntables. So we were like, "Let's go over there and, you know, and play some records." Never played records before in a real way. But we, you know, the bug kind of bit us that night when we started playing organically out of necessity because there was no place to go. And then within six months, I was like, guys, this is what we got to do. We got to start our own party. Like we have to feed the scene. We have to keep this thing going. Like this is the scene that birthed my whole career. How can I not help create a space where people feel inclusivity like everybody's here everybody's welcome it's like cheers and 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 it's the place where you're welcome and it's your sanctuary to let go of all your drama of the week you know it, where it's like your church like it was for us for so many years and so that's really how it happened it really organically creating my deep sugar party in that I sort of by chance became a DJ in a real way you know well it brings us nicely to ultra deluxe and of course unbreakable because in a sense that's that's the sort of overarching um theme in another song isn't it it is very much so and very much um inspired by just this general climate that we're in right now and have been in for quite a few years that feels so toxic every day, you know, with, with, uh, social media, which, you know, when I was, I went into social media, really kicking and screaming <laughs> my manager and Lisa, who's now, uh, passed, but, uh, she was very instrumental as well in me making that leap because I felt at first, like, it's like a bunch of bragging and it's like, I feel like an asshole. Like all I'm talking about is, Oh, I'm going to Paris this week. Oh, now I'm in Spain. Oh, now, I'm in, you know, whatever. Like, but then I realized like, oh, okay, people really want to like share in your journey. They want to know what you're doing. They want to know what's going on. And it's it's a thing. So this is the new way of life. Let's get into it. Over the years, that environment has gotten more and more toxic as people just have no filter. There's no discipline. 
And I've noticed more and more the energy around that space is has gotten very aggressive. And, and then it has migrated into the real world of people with attacking people and LGBTQIA legislation going on, anti-everything happening. Um, and I just felt like when it came time to re-release the Ultra album, with this deluxe version that was going to have some of the music that was not ready when we released the Ultra album in 2022, 23, whatever those those years were. It all starts to get fuzzy after a while. But I, I really wanted something that spoke to this really negative environment and, and what the LGBTQIA plus community is going through because this is my family. These are my friends. These are my colleagues um, that are dealing with like this overt you know, attack on them right now in, in such a way. And you know, and you can go on social networking and you can keep bitching about this and rah, rah, rah about that. But I think there's so much of that that people just become anesthetized to it. And then you also open yourself up for all kinds of trolls and, and drama to come back at you. And, and I've always believed that the way that your music represents you is really how you speak as an artist. So I felt like I've got to get this one song done and it's called Unbreakable. I don't know what, anything else about it. But I just knew that 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 was the title, and that was the 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 story of it. And then from there, I just started writing the messaging from that. And a lot of it, you know, I see a lot of this where the the Christianity thing is being laced into politics in such a way. And so that's why I wrote, you know, your idea of love is a distorted picture because a lot of people are using religious context to persecute people and weaponizing it in such a way. Um, and for me, as a person that grew up in the church environment, for me, it's about love and love is love. And I've never subscribed to that kind of thinking. So we're, we're you know, people are beating people down with, with their religious, you know, propaganda and, and, and just all this ideology. And I'm like, but at the end of the day, where's the love? Where is where is your love? So instead of like going head to head with with these trolls online, because I can't, I don't have that energy. It needed to be in a song where people can take that and speak to them and say, you know what, you're going through X, you're going through Y, you're going through Z, but you are unbreakable. It's still at the end of the day about what we speak in our music because that's what's going to live on beyond us. That's our legacy as artists. So, yeah. That's the story of Unbreakable. Well, Trinati, thank you for your music. Thank you for your positivity. And I want to thank you as a gay man for your support for the LGBTQIA community. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Up there is an interview I recommend. Down there is where you can find all the podcast interviews. And here is where you can connect. <laughs> Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.